The Water Values Podcast, Session 93. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to 2017 and to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, I'm Dave McGimsey. Thanks for joining me. I'm looking forward to another fantastic year and I hope you are too. Thank you for helping me exceed the goal of 40 ratings on iTunes that I uh, announced in my last podcast as we picked up another uh, couple of five-star ratings. So thanks so much to uh, those of you who uh, rated the podcast. We got all five stars in this last go-around. And uh, special thanks to From the Throne for a terrific review on iTunes. So if you have not left a review and rated the podcast, please consider leaving that rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whatever other podcast directory that you use. Well, I recently had the privilege of moderating a panel on water resources resiliency at the American Water Resources Association's 2016 annual conference. We had a terrific panel with Lester Sola and Hardeep Anand, the de- director and deputy director, respectively, of the Miami and Miami-Dade Water and Sewer Department. And we had Cindy Wallace-Lage, the president of Black and Veatch's water business, as well as Sean Grindstaff, senior dispute resolution counsel with the United States EPA. And I can't say enough about how well these panelists did. They, they did a fantastic job. And uh, you'll get the front row seat for that discussion in just a few minutes. Uh, but before we begin, I'd like to say thanks to the American Water Resources Association and to Rafa Frias, who coordinated the AWRA's annual conference and asked if I'd be interested in moderating that opening plenary session of the conference. The entire panel ran for uh, over an hour, so I excised out of the podcast the presentations by each panelist for brevity's sake. And if you wanted to hear the whole thing, well, you can attend next year's uh, Uh, AWRA annual conference, which is being held in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Even with the abridged version, uh, the Q&A lasted for about 42 minutes or so. And so I'm going to dispense with uh, takeaways in order to maximize the time you get to hear these great panelists answer questions about water and water conservation. Uh, Quick note, there is just a little bit of feedback at the beginning, but uh, as the the podcast progresses, uh, it, it, it works itself out. So there's You'll just hear a little bit of buzzing maybe uh, for a few seconds here and there uh, at the first couple of minutes. But after, after that, it goes away. So don't worry about it. Keep on listening. Uh, with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, now let's move into some moderated Q&A. Uh, I thought you all did an excellent job establishing a baseline. That was, that was going to be my first question was let's, let's get a baseline of water resources resiliency. But one of the things I heard... Um, you know, Sean, I liked how you brought up the, uh, the human element of all this. And then, Cindy, you, Hardeep, and Lester all talked about, uh, you know, a lot of different aspects of that, and especially the capital planning. And this is all going to cost money. I think that's the question Cindy had. So I'm, I'm going to switch up my first question. My first question is now going to be to you, Lester. That money's got to come from somewhere, and those are the ratepayers. What? Does the public understand water resources resiliency and the need to invest this money? I think the, the, the short answer is, for the most part, no. Uh, and, and it's really our fault, uh, the, the, the water industry. And, and I'll tell you, the, 
at least from my perspective, uh, you're looking at a, and I'll speak with regards to water and sewer. Water and sewer department uh, in Miami-Dade County was primarily communicated with their stakeholders in, in, in their bills. You got to pay us. There's a water main break. There is going to be delay in traffic. Uh, you're not going to get home. Or there's a sewer main break. Watch out. We're going to destroy uh, someone's home, right? So those were the three times that we were committing, and it wasn't good communication. And when we ventured into a $13 billion capital program and recognizing that our water rates are amongst the lowest, the lowest in the southeast. In fact, we just go up a couple of counties and it could be twice as much. It was going to be very difficult for our stakeholders to continue to support the department. So we ventured into a communications plan, going out there and doing many outreach events so that we could finally make the connection for the public so that they see that wastewater and water infrastructure improvements translates into economic growth. And so for us, it's become more important the communication of that stakeholder than the actual capital program. You know, I would add to that that I don't think there is probably a good understanding, but part of it is because we've had a tremendous infrastructure that's been hidden for a very long time. And so there is a binary reaction. It works, it fails. And there's a huge gap in between that they don't understand necessarily the cost of maintaining that because you don't see, you know, when we, when we put in uh, new pipes or we put in a new treatment plant, the end user doesn't see anything different. They still can turn on their tap. They can still flush their toilet. That didn't go away. And they don't understand then that difference because in other elements when you see working on a road, okay, there's a difference. The pothole's not there that irritated me all day. Or when we do things, we have greater cell connectivity or I have greater functionality on my phone. They can see it. It's tangible. Water doesn't have that tangibility that people immediately see that difference. And so it becomes very binary. And they don't see why if, I was, if it was working and I was paying this much, and then you're telling me it's going to cost me this much more, but it's still just working, so I don't understand the difference. So that's where our communication has to be so tremendously different to understand what it takes to keep it working and not failing and really understand the value of that water and the value of that investment. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and Hardeep, I'll, I'll turn to you now. I want to tap your background uh, from the consulting uh, industry as well as now working in government. What about the political leadership to get us there? Are, are you seeing um, that the, the, the people who are holding the political power understand the need for uh, infrastructure investment and to deal with water resources resiliency? You know, I think by and large, yes. There's, there's enough uh, conversations around the nation, uh, around the globe for that matter, before I answer the question, you know, I think it's, it's prudent to also understand that as, as the industry, uh, we are consumers first. And, you know, the, the 2,600 folks in the utility, at least Miami Dade Water Sewer, we become stewards, we become ambassadors of this conversation that needs to happen. You know, we, we, very, we tend to take things for granted as consumers, but then, you know, when things break, as Lester mentioned, we react, we get things done, uh, rain or shine, we, we, we manage to get it done. And if these 2,600 folks can get, uh, can embrace the change, embrace the communications, then we have, you know, that many more stewards on the streets. And the utility of the future conversation is kind of 
enveloping that element where organizational culture becomes the first element that you really need to work towards because then, then you, the folks who are actually working start embracing whether it's energy or whether it's data or whether it is optimizing operations and so on. On the political side of it, I think, you know, we all agree that communication and messaging that tool, messaging becomes, is, is the most important element. And how do you make that messaging not in a siloed fashion, whether it's on the water side or the wastewater side or the stormwater side, because we know it's all interconnected. And how do you then have that concept of having that overarching conversation across the city, whether you talk about smart cities or whether you're talking even between a local county made up of cities. That unison of the messaging between cities and counties together becomes very powerful. And within the four counties, we have the Southeast Florida Regional Climate Compact that is working towards that goal. In terms of establishing policies, goals, and objectives, we have an Office of Resiliency that is working towards it. We are one of the 100 RCs now. And at a local level within Miami-Dade County, we actually formed a very informal coalition of sorts. We called it the Resilient Utility Coalition, where we brought academia, we brought the industry, we brought uh, all the utilities in the four counties. We did not really bring the community at yet because we think it is still premature, but we put on the hats of the community. You know, we are users ourselves. And the intent is to connect the dot from the top, you know, from the 10 centers of the United Nations, the 100 RCs, the compact, and then finally at the local level where we invite folks to get more and more educated. But I think the answer is yes, we just need to continue working towards it. Terrific. Now, Sean, I'm going to flip to you now and ask you about governance structures in terms of what you're seeing out there. You, you, you talked about the long-term collaboratives. How does that, those long-term collaboratives, how do they match up with what Hardeep uh, was just talking about in terms of our political leaders understanding the need for water resources resiliency? It's an interesting question. I guess my response would be that all of those things that you mentioned are very important, still continue to work. But what's really interesting is that at EPA and other agencies too, we've started to look at more innovative, next generation ways of reaching people. And that's what, when I mentioned context, one of the things that we ask inherently when we try to get context for where people are at is to ask that question, that is, where are you at? In, in, that, in this case, the public. And that can obviously differ from neighborhood to neighborhood, city to city, state to state. But that's uh, where we're starting to now think about additional ways to reach people. Because everyone lives increasingly busy lives. You know, I find this even in mediations that we do. We have people that are distracted with their, with their smartphones when they're in the middle of a critical negotiation moment. So I would say that we need to look at every innovation that might be possible. For those in the room that do a lot of social science type work, uh, to give you an idea, we, in addition to what's been talked about, we look at lots of new things, uh, collaborative adaptive management, open space technology, world cafe approaches to the uh, public meetings, there's, there's a, there's, it just goes on and on and on. So I would say that's where we're going, is we're going to have to expand our universe of how we connect with people and the public in general. And 
that's probably a good place to, to stop right now because I can go on and on about this. There's a lot of different people, a lot of different ways to do it. Sure. So let's turn to the infrastructure again. Infrastructure stocks have done very well since the election. And, and Cindy, since you have this uh, wealth of uh, background on the infrastructure side, uh, overseeing Black and Veatch's uh, water division, what, what are you seeing out there in terms of um, the investment we're going to see uh, in water resources resiliency? Wow, that's a... I, you know, if I can predict this one, I should go into a different business. <clears throat> you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of dialogue about infrastructure and the need to invest in infrastructure and its benefit to economic development. And I think it, I am very hopeful that that will continue to be the focus area. I think that, again, it's going to be a focus area of investing because we understand that as a nation, our strength really is our underlying in infrastructure. That's what allows everything else to work. It's foundational. I was once at a conference, and there was a gentleman that was speaking, and he said, you know, energy and telecommunications are the pillars of our cities. And I said, maybe so, but water's the foundation they sit on. And I think it's critical. It shows that all of it has to connect together, and we have to make that investment, or we will start to see challenges in economic development. So I think that there is an understanding in, I think, the uh, – upcoming administration that that has to be a focus. I think the challenge is still going to be the financing. And, and I don't think that there has been clarity on how that financing is really going to happen. I think that there is, <clears throat> when people here are going to focus on infrastructure, a lot of people immediately hearken back to the way we liked it before, that there was a lot more federal funding. I don't think that's the way it's going to work. And so when you look at some of the conversations that have been going forward, <clears throat> I think we're going to see opportunities for more public private partnerships, which is okay, but we need to help everybody understand what that means and how do we go about it. Uh, I think that there's going to be an opportunity for some funding, but I think a lot of it is we're still going to have to understand that there's no free lunch. We haven't invested. We're going to have to pay for it, and it's going to come down to having the political will to say this is the right thing and this is how we're going to move forward and these are the benefits that come for it and then get the rest of the communities to buy in and doing that. Then the infrastructure spend will happen. But you're going to have to figure out the financing. Everybody, I think, is at least there saying we need to, but I still don't think the financing is clear. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, and it, I've, I've always found it amazing when you go in, into a rate case and you say we're going to raise your rate 20%. It may be just a couple of dollars a month, but the... the <laughs> they focus on the <laughs> priest that gives the greatest negative view. Yeah, That's I, right. I agree. Uh, so, Lester, what about green infrastructure? Well, you know, I'll, I'll, before before we move oh. on, the, I'll mention the, the, the rate structures and, and the in the rate increases. I mentioned that we have one of the, the cheapest uh, waters. The, our average bill is around fifty one dollars. We, we were we did last year a nine percent rate increase, and ultimately, oh my God, all this discussion ended up at eight percent. It's three dollars, four dollars, right? <laughs> and, and that's like for your average customer. It's really minimal dollars compared to the return on that investment that you're getting on being able to drink water, right? And making sure that your wastewater is, is being handled appropriately. So it, it's it, the connection of, yes, we need more infrastructure. The people have to get it, that, that it has to be paid for. But it really comes at, at a great bargain compared to everything else that you're paying for. So with regards to green technologies, uh, 
we are folding all that into into our capital uh, program. In, in fact, the, the when you had mentioned previously as well too the political support. Uh, I'm genuinely surprised uh, and and very happy that our mayor and the, our board of county commissioners have figured out that the investment in water and wastewater infrastructure uh, translates into jobs, not just construction jobs, but jobs in your entire community. So they, we're very fortunate that uh, this administration uh, gets it. In the past, I'll tell you, the, the Water and Sewer Department, at, at one point even the rates were reduced in, in spite of the fact that the capital demands were, were increasing. So the, the support really has shifted into supporting rate increases as long as we can continue to return a, a value to to our stakeholders. With regards to green and, and, and being, being resilient, the, uh, the same legislative body has mandated that not just in, in water and wastewater infrastructure, but in every single type of construction project that's taking place in Miami-Dade County, that we take into consideration sea level rise, that we take into consideration being green and being resilient and being efficient. Those are all legislative mandates that have been passed by the same board that's supporting the rate increases. So everyone gets it that we want, we need to invest, but we need to invest wisely, not just in getting the return on the investment, but making sure that we're being resilient uh, into the future. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure we have an opportunity for the audience to have questions. So at this time, I will ask, yes, sir. strikes me that we're not um, taking advantage of smart metering and variable rate pricing, and it's sort of like the pothole problem. If you can tell your consumer, hey, if you use water at this time of day, it's bad, and this time of day it's good, and sort of maybe balance it and charge them, you know, why, why don't we have a display on our wall that says, hey, water's down to 10 cents a gallon instead of 20. <laughs> And so, hey, kids, take a shower in the afternoon instead of, you know, I mean, yeah. could we change behavior? Could we improve our infrastructure and resilience if we sort of modify behavior with rate variability? I so, totally. Real quick, so just so everyone knows, the question is, can we change behavior through time of use pricing in water? And that time of use pricing is one element, but even before you go there, it's just having communication of what you're doing. You know, people don't actually realize how much water they utilize in their home. And much less you look at your broader water footprint influenced by your own lifestyle, what you eat, what you do, uh, all of those things that come into play. Water is that thread through everything. But when you look in your own household, people don't realize what they're doing. They don't realize when they've left the hose on too long. They don't realize what, how much water they use when they water their, their plants, not just their yards, but when they're just watering around when they wash their cars and they let the hose run the whole time as opposed to having something that you're only using it when, water's only on when you need it. How long your teenage children take showers and what that's doing to you. Um, I had three teenagers in my household at one point in time and <clears throat> our water bill was higher and it wasn't from watering the lawn. <laughs> and so being able to have that visual, if we can change it, people can see what they're doing, they will modify. And you do see it in some places. Uh, a friend of mine lives in California, and they have the ability in their community that they're getting that feedback. They have the smart metering. They're getting real-time information on their water use. And what he saw was the water, their water usage was way up, but he knew that no one was there. 
And he couldn't understand. No, it was during the day. No one was home. Why was the water use going up? When they got home, they looked. Well, they'd had guests. They had a guest bedroom and guest bathroom, and, and they never go in there. And it turns out one of the guests who had last been there hadn't turned off the faucet completely in the sink. And so it had been running. And, you know, and it could have ran a lot longer, but the fact is he was able to get real-time information. So I think you can look at real-time pricing and having that, and that becomes a whole other layer to it. But if you just get connectivity that people can see the influence of what they're doing, and then what if you actually benchmark them about, well, this is what the rest of your neighborhood's doing. And then you have the ability to influence and say, well, gosh, they're all using a lot less water than I am. Why is that? What can I do differently? How do I investigate? Then you can change behaviors, and then people can see that they have control. Now, one of the challenges I have seen with that, that in other communities where they're trying to go there, is they have gone to a lot more fixed pricing than variable pricing. And then you start to erode because they're saying, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. And then you also have this other element that comes in that we're challenged with in many parts of the United States, which is we're saying you need to do conservation. You need to use less water. But the infrastructure doesn't cost less for that. So we need to raise the rates. And so people are going, okay, let me get this straight. I'm using less. i got to pay more. Again, helping any way that we can visualize and help them make that transition is going to be key. And that is we have to have greater transparency with their daily data so that they can understand where they can make a difference and get them to have that emotional buy-in. I think that's when you're going to start to see change. I would just add, the, when, when I mentioned value and the return on the investment, sometimes it's not dollars. The, the value of having an AMI system that allows your homeowners or your users to see how much water they're using has, uh, has a lot of value in being able for them to manage their lives and seeing how they're using that valuable resource. AMI is not going to be a moneymaker for the department, for Miami-Dade County's Water and Sewer Department. In fact, at best, we break even. Right now, we're doing quarterly billing. So, but there are a lot of things that we can get a return on your investment if we do monthly billing and even show you how you're using water on a daily basis. If there's a water, if there's a water leak, we won't find out for three months until you call us and tell us, hey, there's a water leak. So if we're able to give you information as to how much water you're using, how much water your peers are using, your usage is going to go down, right? Uh, which is, has probably a negative return on our investment because you're going to be using less water, which means we're going to be getting less revenue. But uh, it, it has value for the entire community in, in making sure that we're able to manage that valuable resource uh, correctly. And, and for us, we'll figure out the economics of it. But we, we still have to invest in that infrastructure. But that information has value to our customers. Yeah, and to your point, Cindy, I have a financial consultant I, I've done some rate cases with, and whenever a client is asked about conservation rates, he always says, well, you've got to be careful with conservation rates because they might work. And <laughs> you, you end up yeah. short on the revenue side. Do. So do. Uh, do we have any other uh, audience questions? Yeah. Yes, uh, sir. Just kind of a follow-up to that discussion, and maybe this is, this is more to Cindy. Within our territory, we have about, say, 20% or more domestic self-supply. And there's a lot of septic tank uh, folks, too, that are on septic. And I'm, I'm just curious what the panel's thoughts are on sort of reaching out to those folks that are on domestic self-supply and septic who, who really don't necessarily pay into a, a utility. So how do, how do we communicate or how do we reach out to those folks to, to kind of get their attention? 
Okay, the, the question is how do we reach out to those who are on wells or septics to get their attention concerning water resources resiliency? You know, I'll tell you, for, with regards to Miami-Dade County, it's, it's the entire spectrum. There's people who are on wells and septic and who want to get into service, and there are some that refuse to, regardless of whether we just installed a new lo uh, line, uh, because there's a, there's a neighbor down the street that has a contaminated well. So it's, it's, it really depends on, on the human factor of, of those individuals. We know with, with the, the septic tanks are going to have a problem, uh, especially depending on where you are, whether you're on the bluff or not, uh, uh, close to the coastline or not, you know, when um, sea level rise has a, has a bigger impact on us. So, uh, but the legislative bodies, our commissioners, are, have figured out that they're, they're seeking some financing, some type of solutions from the state on trying to get everyone on sewer service as well as, as water service. We know it's, it's, it's inevitable. The, the who pays for it is really the $64,000 question that, that uh, some of us are having trouble with. I think, again, it comes down to that communication and the value that they're going to get out of that, that resiliency for their own system. You know, I can think of other parts of the country where, you know, wells go dry, you know, and, and there's a challenge there. And, and, and this gives you that resiliency from that to be able to manage against. It doesn't mean that the whole community isn't having a challenge, but how do you manage your own influence, uh, resell properties that come, you know, what is that value of being able to have that resiliency? Not everybody's going to want to have that independence. Um, <clears throat> it's understanding the challenges that come and that the influence that you can have on septic to the overall water system, to the commute to your neighbors if you're not maintaining that. And then I think the other element that has to be brought into is the bigger picture of uh, firefighting and being able to have those, you know, if you're wanting to be able to have that protection, water has to come from somewhere. So if there isn't a water line there, or if you're not paying into it, do you have the right to have someone tap into that and save your house or not? And that's a harsh way to look at things. But there are benefits that we all get from having resilient water systems, and we need to understand that there's a cost from that. And it, it, it may not be something you ever have to tap into, but it's one strong insurance policy that you might want to consider. We put insurance policies on everything else. You might want to think about the insurance policy that comes from having the resilient water and sewer systems that are able to make sure that we have safe communities um, and that our own households have really the, the quality that we want. David, if I might throw this in, too. Uh, I, I was thinking of the White River Basin in particular, Missouri and Arkansas, the Upper White. That's one of the examples I talked about of a long-term collaborative. So you might want to check in with some of the NGOs and the utilities in that area because septic was a big, uh, a big concern there. And uh, there have been some amazing innovations and ideas that come out of those particular watersheds. So I was just going to throw that in, especially on the subject of septic. Also, I, I know from a, a regulated utility standpoint, uh, I've seen utilities who have uh, step programs or septic tank elimination programs uh, that were subsidized because extending sewer service to those uh, users can be expensive. And the regulating body actually has struck down some of those subsidized step programs because they didn't want other users subsidizing the extension of service. So there, there are some cost issues there, too, that you need to be aware of. 
Uh, do we have any other audience questions? Yes, sir. Okay, our question concerns, uh, I think it's a social justice question, uh, and providing water service in, in relation to how much it's being paid, or are you talking water quality? No, I'm saying that the communities all around the country are looking at Flint and wondering whether our reports that say everything is fine are true or not. Right now, we may know that they are, but the communities certainly don't feel that way. So we need to figure out, as an industry, how do we step into this challenge where people no longer do trust that the water we're paying for is safe. Okay, I think the question now is how, how can we uh, assure the public confidence in the water supply? Yeah, I'll speak for, with regards to, to, to us. There, the, shortly after the whole Flint story came out, we were getting questions uh, and writing reports to every single political body you could think of, of the, the standards and the quality of, of our water. And it doesn't matter if you tell them, oh my God, we're testing this water 100,000 times a year, it's exceptional quality. People are always going to have that little doubt in their minds, are you cutting corners? Um, so it really, it really boils down to the leadership and the standards that the, that the department or the agency is going to set forth as to what are we going to deliver. Are we, are we shooting for the bottom of the baseline to just be good enough to meet those requirements? Or are we, are we shooting way higher than that and then highlighting that to our, to our stakeholders so that they see that their water is, in fact, of exceptional quality? I think anytime you have an event like that, you're, you're obviously you're in, you're going to be impacted regardless of which agency or it's it's human nature to then doubt and question. But that's when we have to really double down on our efforts to communicate to to our stakeholders that what our efforts are with regards to maintaining that water quality that they're consuming. You know, I would note that it is truly devastating what's happened in Flint and unacceptable and was preventable. And there's a lot of other words that you can probably keep adding on to that. But we as an industry right now have an opportunity that, while we don't like why the water industry was highlighted, we have an opportunity to capitalize on that and increase our communications and our messaging of the value of having strong leadership and the importance of the quality leadership that you need to have within the water industry, within utilities to be able to drive the investments and have the um, integrity to say I'm not going to cut corners because I understand that I'm dealing with really human life, uh, you know, and we need to make sure that, that we're maintaining our systems in a manner that isn't just about cost. That allows us to also have that value conversation that it isn't just about cost. And this gives you an example, like it or not, of when cost was the driver, we made the wrong decisions. It shows why we have to think more holistically. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need to do a better job in all of the things that we do. There's always room for improvement. Every one of us can think of things. We wish we'd done this. We wish we'd done that. We have those tools out there. Uh, we need to also step into the data analytics is one, but just, again, that, that whole social communication and investing and having the conversations such that we're educating. Because if we're not filling in the space, somebody's going to fill it in, and it's not going to be the message that we want. So we have to make sure that we step in 
and communicate all of the great things that we do. Uh, we were having a conversation earlier on a different topic, but people remember the negative way longer than they remember 10 positives. We have hundreds and hundreds <clears throat> of positives, excuse me, <clears throat> hundreds and hundreds of positives that we do within the water industry space, and we don't highlight them enough. So then when you have the negative, it totally shifts confidence. We need to toot our own horns. We do a lot of great things. We need to make sure the community see what we're doing and see the value that we provide. Yeah. Agreed. Any other questions? Uh, I think you had your hand up first. All right. Uh, so I really like this quote, once we rid ourselves of traditional thinking, we can get on with creating the future. In the context of our regulations and getting this long-term collaboration and looking at things from a one-water perspective, what, what's happening on the national and regional scale with regulators coming together that are regulating the different aspects of one water to make that a reality? So our question is, what's happening uh, on the national scale to make one water a reality? I, I can make a quick comment. Being a process guy, not so much on the policy front, but across the country we're seeing that recognition that there isn't enough communication between not just local agencies, but state to state. I mean, state agency to state agency within the same state. Uh, federal agencies have a lot of work to do to, to enhance that. And I'm just saying it's a trend that I think everybody is recognizing. And so then the trick becomes, how do we do that again? How, how do we really, in busy lives, busy jobs, how do you get that finished? But, but yes, it's definitely being recognized. So, I, so, you, no, I've spoken enough. Okay. Go ahead. I'll well, speak. I'll just add to it from a, from a capital planning standpoint, because that's where uh, the rubber really hits the road, right? You take the policies, you take your goals, you take your objectives, uh, and then finally the proof is in the pudding. How are you really getting it done? And... You know, there's obviously a lot of work to be done because there's local codes that will need to be changed. There's, there's, there's a need for more collaborative inputs um, within the organizations that deal with this. But if you, if you look at really stormwater and if you're able to manage it through green infrastructure, that needs obviously, it has a slew of repercussions both from the developer community or even from the community at, at large. And then as you start changing those regulations, there's a cost of doing business there. When you're starting to become more sustainable, you're using local building materials, now probably you're creating jobs. So I'd like to say that the overarching conversation here is messaging. And if you start messaging that systems-wide thinking between water, wastewater, stormwater, and if you don't find your stormwater into your wastewater systems, you're not using that many more chemicals, you're not using that much more energy, uh, your treatment systems are not upset because the bugs are much happier without having to, you know, treat more stormwater. INI introduces costs. And all of these conversations, I think even though the regs might be siloed, as you mentioned, um, there's, a need for, there's a need for that communication to happen at the regulatory side. There's a need for that communication to happen at the professional level between water, wastewater, stormwater, and at the community level at large because these conversations are integrated. And I think sometimes it's the putting the cart in front of the horse syndrome where we want to be doing these things, but how do you really peel the layers of the onion? 
and go down to ground zero and say, all right, this is how we're going to lay the, blue, the blueprint of making it happen. Because I think the rate at which we're being confronted with these issues is faster than the rate at which we're talking about funding it or even messaging it. And I think that would probably be, you know, my take at it in terms of, yes, we want to do it, but let's, let's take 50 steps back and put some kind of a blueprint around it and get it done. I just want to add to that, and that blueprint is integrated planning, and it's really trying to bring all of the stakeholders together and deciding if you had a dollar, where's the best space, place to spend that dollar? What's the most impactful to the community? What's the most pressing needs, and what can they afford? And that means you have to look at it holistically, because sometimes it may be that we need to, we know all the things we need to address, we need to prioritize it, we need to go through, set our vision. And that has to have from all of those different players, stakeholders engaged in that conversation. And regulators have to be there because they need to be able to set science-based, realistic goals. But then they need to let others really define how do we get there. And they got to get to this concept of, you know, be open and get past the traditional thinking. Well, we haven't seen that technology used for at least five years within our state doing blah, blah, blah. Okay, we're a bigger world than that. We need to figure out how we can think more broadly. Yeah. Just to add to Cindy, I think, you know, the, 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 from a rate structure standpoint, we've talked about it in terms of messaging, and we've got the cost of deferred maintenance in terms of our capital needs for, for the last so many years. It could be attributed to a bunch of reasons. could be the economy, could be the, the political environment, or a combination thereof. But we really haven't taken a hard look at pricing resilience and when you take the cost of your aging infrastructure needs that we frequently talk about, and then you add to it the cost of resilience and whatever that definition might mean to different individuals, you've got to probably start there. What does resilience mean to us uh, within our communities, both at the local level, state level, national level? That's where governance then comes in. And when you add the cost of resilience, now you're in a different ballgame altogether. And to some extent, it becomes a difficult conversation to have because you know it's not easy when you start adding these costs. And therefore, I think to stretch that dollar, I come from a, from a standpoint of trying to start optimizing your systems, trying to save costs so you can fund those unmet needs to some extent. Um, you know, start telling the story that yes, we're doing what we should be doing as professional organizations or consultants or regulators. Uh, or the industry at large, I think then you have a much better buy-in from the community when they see that we're really making those impactful decisions on a day-to-day -day basis, and then, you know, the funding of the unmet needs becomes an easier uh, battle to fight. We have time for one more question. Now, sir, I think you had your hand. So I think our question is, how do you uh, build a system to, to be resilient against shocks to the system as contrasted with chronic, uh, chronic stresses on the system? Is that a fair summation? You know, I would, I would say that that is being done. And I, I would say, it, a good example to really highlight this is, if you look at New York, Hurricane Sandy, 
and the the challenges that they had with their systems. And I speaking from the water side, you know, there was a lot that could have been managed on the water side for their water treatment systems, wastewater treatment system, mainly wastewater treatment systems. But what happened is you didn't have the resiliency to deal with the energy. So they lost power, which lost pump stations, which lost transfer. So the treatment plant wasn't the weak link. You also lost telecommunications. What did telecommunications tell you? That you lost power and that you had lost your connectivity and that your pumps were no longer running. And so I think when we look at resiliency, we are looking at that uncertainty, those things that can happen that are bigger and broader than just the daily ups and downs and understanding how will we manage that. But part of that is understanding what are we willing to live with? Because you cannot be able to handle everything. You just, we can't afford to build that. And then you wouldn't be able to operate it effectively. And so we have been looking at, okay, what are the outcomes? What, how long can we manage? What can we do if we lost this? How do we, what is that key piece that people may not think of that if we go back into that why did this happen and you go five whys deep kind of a thing and say, all right, you know what, that's, that's a critical point. We can address that. Find those points and then that can give you that resiliency to handle those larger um, shocks and stresses to our system. I think of those as shocks. I think of the others as stresses. Uh, and we need to be able to manage both, but we got to understand what is our outcome and what are we really trying to achieve with those and really look broader than maybe we typically have in defining what those solutions are. And there are processes. Earlier I mentioned the words collaborative adaptive management, which is tied pretty closely to this. Uh, we are designing processes now in various places uh, with the help of everyone in the community to actually create an environment where people realize at the outset things change. And so, yes, you'd have your traditional monitoring of streams, things that go on, but at the same time there's a recognition built into the process that things can change on a dime. And that puts the community and all the other stakeholders in a very different place because then they can sit and talk about these things. and. Uh, that is being done, uh, and it's very exciting, but again, it's very long-term because that's not a, an instantaneous sort of exercise. It takes a long time. You know, I can, I can just quickly add to that from Miami-Dade County standpoint, and as Cindy said, you got to start with the framework, and it has to be gradual, right? You don't need to have necessarily separate plans because then you're working in a very disjointed manner. So within your capital improvement plans, you have to incorporate the framework of resiliency. And when you start from the top, you know, we are working at looking at, you know, I think the Homeland Security folks uh, have a resiliency index. They look at 1,500 different variables, and they come up with an index based on which I think the feds appropriate money to different states. Now, when you come down to the state level and the local level, as Cindy mentioned, you start defining what your level of service is, what's the expectation, and how would you start looking at the degradation of services in the aftermath, let's say, of a storm. And, and resiliency, again, then is not just limited to climate change or sea level rise. There are several tools out there. The EPA, for instance, has the CREATE tool, uh, which is pretty brand new out there. It's called the Climate Readiness Evaluation Awareness Tool. And it helps you start looking at risks and mitigating factors on a local level based on climate threats at, at the regional and the local level. 
And if you start taking those tools, looking at degradation of services, looking at community expectations, the appetite uh, of the political environment, um, you need to have passable streets, for instance, but you're also looking at other disasters, natural disasters. You're looking at cybersecurity issues. And all of these things then accumulate into that framework that you start adapting to as you're putting in, let's say, new SCADA systems, you start looking at technology. As you're looking at non-revenue water, you start looking at AMIs and so on and so forth. And that, I think, then integrates into that framework of resiliency as a whole, rather than sometimes we tend to start looking at just climate change and sea level rise issues, but there's, some, there's a lot more beyond it, as you mentioned, in terms of the shocks and the stressors to the utility at large. Well, we have run out of time, and I just want to uh, thank our panelists, and, and would you please thank our panelists for a terrific discussion today. Well, I hope you enjoyed that panel discussion from the opening plenary session of the American Water Resources Association's 2016 Annual Conference. A huge thank you to the AWRA and to Lester Sola, Hardeep Anand, Cindy Wallace-Lage, and Sean Grindstaff for being absolutely terrific panelists. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 93. Leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993 and tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast directory that you listen to the show on. And don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at, again, thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.